Hello. Welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from CJUM-FM in Winnipeg, and we welcome our listeners from campus and community radio and affiliated stations nationwide. On this episode of Alert, we'll be examining history-making developments in three of Canada's biggest provinces. We'll speak again with Trevor Harrison of the Parkland Institute about the surprising results in the recent Alberta elections and what this portends for the future. We'll speak with activist and blogger Richard Fiddler about the longest student strike in Quebec history and where that will take La Belle Province. And BC-based activist and Canadian Dimension contributor Derek O'Keefe brings us his analysis of the recent NDP victories in two BC by-elections, as well as the significance of another controversial oil pipeline crossing British Columbia. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of April 26, 2012. Led by Alison Redford, the Alberta Progressive Conservatives easily beat back the upstart Wild Rose Party led by Danielle Smith. Polls just a week ago indicated the election results would go the other way, but the PCs won 62 seats to the Wild Rose 17. The NDP and the Liberals each won four seats. Our first interview will examine this surprising result and its long-term implications. To ensure passage of his minority government's budget this week, Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty hastily agreed to an NDP demand to add a 2% tax on personal incomes above $500,000. Polls have shown overwhelming support for this policy, but it is vehemently po- opposed by the business community. Thousands of international scientists are calling on Canada to postpone commercial fishing in the Arctic to protect the northern ecosystem. Scientists from over 60 countries are arguing that due to increased open water space as a result of melting polar ice caps, comprehensive research is needed to determine sustainable catch limits for the waters. Of the five countries with coasts along the Arctic Ocean, only Denmark and the U.S., agree to a temporary moratorium on commercial or exploratory fishing until research is complete. Trevor Taylor of the Pew's Ocean North Canada project argues that placing regulations after fishing begins is very difficult. So we w- what we are trying to do here, he said, is say for the first time in our history we can at least do it right in the Arctic Ocean. A banner was dropped in Toronto this week telling motorists to call in sick on International Workers' Day. The action was organized by No One Is Illegal and Occupy Toronto, whose members wore large smiley faces during the banner drop as a lead-up to the May 1st activities. The groups also released a list of ailments inflicted on the 99% by the 1%, such as Harper Flu, Borderitis, and Ocucough. The groups are calling for no work, no school, no shopping, no banking, and no housework for May 1st. They are also organizing a rally and demonstration and a 24-hour occupation in Toronto. After finishing the first round of the presidential elections in fourth place, France's left front 
has endorsed the Socialist Party in hopes of ousting the current president, Nicolas Sarkozy. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, leader of Left Front, called on the left to band together around Socialist Party leader François Hollande, who finished the first round of voting with 28.6%, placing him in first, narrowly ahead of Sarkozy. I ask you to mobilize yourselves as if it was the case of making me president, he told his supporters. Meanwhile, Sarkozy is hoping to gain votes from supporters of the far-right candidate Marine Le Pen after she finished with 17.9% by pushing a nationalist, anti-immigration message of protecting the French way of life. The heat wave in the U.S. and Canada this spring provides much-needed data in support of global warming. The new heat records are trumping cold weather records by a ratio of 35.3 to 1. If temperatures were not warming, the number of record daily highs and lows being set each year would be approximately even, explains Dr. Gerald Meal, senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So far in 2012, there have been over 6,000 new heat records set in the United States. Meteorolo- meteorologist Dr. Jeff Masters said, quote, It is highly unlikely the warmth of the current summer-in-March heat wave could have occurred unless the climate is warming. Those were the alert headlines for the week of April 26, 2012. And now for Around the Left for the week of April 26, 2012. The Winnipeg-based Mayworks Festival of Labor and the Arts joins festivals across the country to honor May Day and working-class culture through song, dance, film, and stories. The 2012 festival theme, Change the World, invites the community to be the change they want to see by participating in a medley of events taking place from April 27th to June 2nd. For more information, check out the website, mayworks.org. Toronto's 26th annual Socialist May Day celebration, Fighting for the 99%, will take place April 28th from 7 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. Speakers will include Jorge Soberon, the Consul General of Cuba in Toronto, John Clark, of the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, Farid Ayad, National President of the Canadian Arab Federation. There will be entertainment and delicious food and snacks and drinks. For details, call the Free Times Cafe at 416-967-1078. There will also be a literature and CDs display, a raffle and other surprises. Admission is $10.00. Five dollars for non-waged or pay what you can. The Manitoba Federation of Labor is organizing a candlelight service in Winnipeg on April 28th at 10 a.m. to recognize the National Day of Mourning for those who have lost their lives or become disabled from work. The service is a free event and will take place in room 2C at Union Center at 275 Broadway. For those in Caledonia, On April 28th at 2 o'clock p.m., come to a march and rally in support of Indigenous land rights. The Haudenosaunee of the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory invite you to join them and march for peace, respect, and friendship. The gathering will take place at Edinburgh Square at Haudenosaunee Park 
across from the Caledonia Fairgrounds in the township of Caledonia. The march will move down Argyle Street to the site known as Canon Staton, where there will be a potluck, live music, games, activities, and discussions to which all are invited. For more information, email K-A-N-O-N-H-S-T-A-T-O-N at gmail.com or visit april28coalition.wordpress.com. On May Day, May 1st, say no to work, school, shopping, banking, and housework. Occupy Toronto invites you to join the 99% in a day of action to celebrate International Workers' Day. At 4 p.m. at Nathan Phillips Square, there will be a rally and march to respect Indigenous sovereignty, insist that no one is illegal, fight austerity, end imperialist wars and aggression, build people's power, and move beyond a system that is unjust, exploitative, and destructive. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East is delighted to announce a seven-city speaking tour with Dr. Ilan Pape, a renowned Israeli historian and author of The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Dr. Pape will deliver his lecture titled The False Paradigm of Peace, Revisiting the Palestine Question, in Montreal on April 30th, Ottawa on May 1st, Toronto on May 2nd, London on May 3rd, Calgary on May 4th, and in both Victoria and Vancouver on May 5th. The lecture will be followed by a Q&A period. Tickets are $15 for non-students or $10 for students with ID. Tickets can be purchased at the door while supplies last, or you can reserve a front section seat by buying in advance via TicketWeb.com or by calling 1-888-222-6608. Seating is limited, so get your ticket early. That was Around the Left for this week. Alison Redford defied the pollsters when she emerged triumphant in the recent provincial election in Alberta. So why did the pollsters who were predicting a wild rose majority get it so wrong? What message was expressed by voters, and what does it portend for politics in Canada's richest western province? To get some answers, we've brought back last week's guest on this subject, Trevor Harrison. He is a professor of political sociology at the University of Lethbridge and director of the Parkland Institute. So welcome back, Trevor. Hi there, Michael. Okay, so uh, Trevor, uh, I guess uh, like a lot of people, you're rather surprised by the results. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, very many people surprised. I think that uh, pollsters and pundits, uh, myself included, uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're doing our mea culpas today. <laughs> so what uh, do you suppose there was something wrong with uh, the pollsters' methods, or uh, was there some sort of a reaction on the part of the public? Uh, what is your assessment of the, uh, that, diverse, that divergence from expectations? Right. I, I think there is some real uh, uh, questions to be raised about uh, polling methods, and uh, even a number of uh, pollsters will admit that it's increasingly becoming difficult to get a good sample. That being said, I think uh, there's right throughout, even if you uh, to some extent accepted what the polls were saying, they were all over the map, but there was a general movement in the last couple of weeks. You could sort of the macro trend was towards a, a closening of the uh, the uh, support between Wild Rose and the Conservative Party. 
And in fact, uh, the the last few days, of course, the, a lot of the polling ended short of the last weekend. And what we saw was a large number of people who were still undecided. Uh, and finally, I think some of the uh, there were a number of incidents happened in the last week where Wild Rose, which had uh, run a kind of Teflon campaign up to that point, uh, started to run into a few problems. Uh, a couple of their candidates uh, made uh, remarks that seemed to be you know, were alleged at least to be uh, perceived as being uh, racist or homophobic. And uh, Danielle Smith actually, I think, uh, raised some concerns too when she was talking about uh, questions about the legitimacy of climate change science and she was going to revamp the healthcare system once again. All of these little things raised red flags, I think, for some people. So some of the undecideds, presumably in the last uh, weekend, finally decided to shift back again to their very comfortable ground with the uh, PCs. So would you sort of interpret this as uh, Albertans waking, I mean, being dissatisfied with the current government, but thinking that maybe we don't want to go from the frying pan into the fire? Or was this maybe something like strategic voting? Well, there's a lot of talk that some strategic voting went on, although actually the uh, uh, the Liberal and uh, uh, NDP vote in Alberta stayed reasonably strong, particularly in certain pockets. In Alberta, the uh, you know practically uh, you know the the dominance of the right has meant that uh, you don't really have a lot of choice, at least in the minds of a lot of Albertans. Um, so it really came down, in some sense, to uh, well, do we pick the uh, devil we know or the devil we don't know? Uh, yes, the PCs deserve to be punished. They've been in office too long. They're uh, they're old. They're you know viewed as corrupt. They've uh, you know made some terrible mistakes. And on the other hand, you have this really untried uh, party that also seems to be making a lot of mistakes. And so, I think our our choices were actually relatively constrained around that. Um, on the other hand, what I will say is there is a uh, uh, within the conservative movement uh, th- there is different factions there, and Redford's victory is very much more in line with a kind of red Toryism of Peter Lougheed and even Joe Clark, uh, which is is very interesting. I think in the uh, in a province where kind of the hard right, uh, particularly at the federal level, has pretty much wiped out the red Tory faction. In Alberta, you suddenly have a uh, kind of gra- uh, growth again of, of that uh, red Tory faction. So that makes it very interesting, I think, for the country as a whole. Okay, well, we'll develop that point a little bit. I mean, if Miss Redford is a, a kind of a Joe Clark, Peter Lougheed Tory, are, are we looking at a, a very different uh, politics going forward? Well, you know, predictions are always really hazardous, especially after an election in which we predicted so, so many of us that Wild Rose is going to win it. But I do think it, you know, the fact is Alberta has uh, been very much in the forefront of changes within the federal Conservative Party for the last uh, 20 years or so. And now what you have is a, uh, a government in Ottawa that really comes out of the kind of uh, reform party uh, uh, rise in the late 1980s. Uh, kind of Western populist, um, uh, very kind of hard right libertarian element, uh, and which, frankly, really, uh, besides disliking the liberals, actually really disliked red Tories as well. Uh, and yet on the provincial level, in, in an area where the uh, 
federal Tories are extremely strong, uh, they now are faced with the provincial party, which has a, a slightly different view of uh, the relationship between individual and state and society and markets. And I don't know how that's going to play out, but I do think it's a really interesting uh, phenomenon. Let me just throw this in here, in fact. Um, it's, it's fairly well known that the vast majority of MPs in Ottawa in the federal Conservative Party were very much supportive. The Alberta MPs were very much supportive of Wild Rose. So that says something about where the Harper government uh, actually was uh, placing its uh, bets in this election. Okay, now talk a little bit about one of the key issues in the province, the development of the tar sands. Mm. Um, given, Especially given this uh, near-death experience, you might want to call it, what do you anticipate is going to be the emphasis of the Alberta government uh, with regard to the tar sands? I think this is, uh, this is a real challenge going forward, and it would have been a real challenge for whichever party uh, won yesterday, uh, and I would include in that actually uh, had the Liberals or uh, NDP actually won. It is a real challenge what to do. The, uh, the pipeline's going south, the pipeline's going uh, west, uh, the northern pipeline through B.C., uh, those have been fraught with all kinds of political uh, intrigue, and uh, I suspect the pipeline going south is, uh, is is likely to go ahead at some point. The one going into BC is much much more dif- uh, difficult, I think. That does leave a third avenue, and that is to really try to expand uh, oil and gas uh, shipments uh, east to the uh, the rest of Canada and build kind of a east-west network of uh, energy production. Uh, there is also, a, uh, besides the politics of these pipelines, a real difficulty here because uh, the United States is suddenly uh, facing a uh, glut of uh, oil and uh, the price of gas is actually dropping. So Alberta faces some uh, tough economic times going ahead. And I think Redford, however, has already said that she uh, she's kind of a bridge builder and she wants to make better connections with Canada. And that might actually be Alberta's salvation in the uh, in the years to come. Hmm. Uh, so when it comes to some of the big national questions, uh, health care being a, a critical one, not just in Alberta but all across the country, uh, what what kind of a uh, a presence is she going to be uh, with regard to that uh, issue? Well, conservative parties uh, in this province for the last long while have not been uh, uh, that uh, helpful in trying to preserve uh, uh, public health care. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, Redford realizes that uh, her party or predecessors have uh, badly managed that file, and it still is right at the top of the list of concerns for Albertans. So, the vast majority of Albertans are very much supportive of uh, public health care, of protecting the Canada Health Act. And uh, one may assume that, in fact, uh, Redford was going to want to uh, steer closer to a, uh, a much more middle and uh, protective ground for that. But we'll, we'll see. And how will the Wild Rose Party uh, ad- adapt to this uh, election? Are they finished or are they going to make a comeback? Are they going to evolve somehow? What do you see as in their future? 
Well, it was a funny election because there's something in it for everybody. On one hand, uh, even the conservatives, even though they lost uh, you know seats and they lost votes, uh, this is now Redford's government. So she actually, it's a victory for her. Wild Rose went from one seat to 17, so they have something to build on. So uh, although I think they were disappointed, I, I think a large number of them thought they would win government. They, uh, you know, you can't... Uh, Beat the fact that they actually have gone up by 16 members, so they have something to build on for next time. And even in this province, uh, the uh, Liberal Party and the NDP both won four seats each, which actually gives them official party status in the legislature, which is not inconsiderable. So they actually got something out of this as well. So it, it makes for a, a little more interesting dynamic in the province than we've seen over the last number of years. Well, um Trevor, it seems to have been one of the most, uh, if not the most, uh, interesting election to come along, uh, um, perhaps in a couple of generations. So I, I want to thank you for uh, helping to assess and, and dissect it for us. Thanks well, for sharing those viewpoints with us. Thank you. Alert has been speaking with Trevor Harrison. He is a political sociologist and the director of the Parkland Institute. The Quebec student strike has now extended into its 11th week. 170,000 people participated in a recent rally in solidarity with the students, and on Thursday of last week, 150 people were arrested in a violent clash with police. The disruptions from the student movement is clearly having an impact, and recently Education Minister Lynn Beauchamp extended an olive branch to the striking students by requesting talks to resolve the situation. So how much longer will this strike go on, and how much of an impact will it have on Quebec and the rest of Canada? Richard Fiddler is an independent activist. He is the author of the blog Life on the Left, which puts a special emphasis on the situation in Quebec and aspects of it that are of interest to people outside the province. So, Richard Fiddler, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. Pleased to be with you. Okay, now we, we've heard about the, uh, the $365 per year increase in tuitions over the next five years. What are the other issues being raised by the students in these protests? Well, of course, one of the immediate ones is something that you referred to, and that is the, um, the rather violent repression which has been uh, meted out to them in the last uh, uh, couple of weeks or so. Uh, by the police, and uh, the reaction in the population, of course, has been uh, quite um, uh, quite uh, excited um, and, and uh, hostile to the police um, actions, and I think that has won the students a lot of sympathy. Um, you mentioned 150 arrests, but actually in my area alone, just on the other side of the Ottawa River in Gatineau, Quebec, um, there were over 300 people arrested last week. I was one of them, as a matter of fact. The uh, student strike is now quite complete, um, and uh, they've, uh, they've won some major victories in, in, in holding firm. And uh, when Lynn Beauchamp, the education minister, extended, as you say, this olive branch, there was an ulterior motive that most people sensed in what she did. Uh, she was trying to divide the student movement. The student movement in Quebec is, is divided into three major groups. Um, two of them are relatively uh, conservative, I think you would say, compared to the third, which is the leading movement and which represents about half of the students who are on strike. 
Um, I won't give you the full name of it, but its, it's acronym is CLASS, C-L-A-S-S-E. And um, she tried to um, say that because um, she, uh, because CLASS had refused to um, denounce uh, certain acts that had been committed, um, violent acts against property and so on, um, that had been committed in a few instances by very few individuals, um, she would not meet with them. And, and she was trying to uh, separate out the, the student organizations. Well, the other two organizations said, no, they would not meet with the minister unless she agreed to meet with all the student groups. And this has been a characteristic of this strike um, throughout this experience, uh, that despite whatever differences they have among themselves, among the groups, um, they have maintained a very firm, um, determined, united front. And I think this has been a big factor now in actually changing the relationship of forces uh, between the students and the, the government and the university administrations, which have generally been behind the government. And in the last week or so, we've seen um, uh, uh, the beginnings of a retreat by the university administrations and more and more of a demand um, throughout Quebec society that for the government to talk to the students, to, to negotiate with them, and to at least listen to their proposals, not only with regard to um, their opposition to the fee hike, but also more general questions which have been raised in particular by the class, the, 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 the more radical and more representative grouping, if you want, um, for a general discussion about education and educational reform. So there have been some big victories scored already by the students, and now, of course, they are in an intensive negotiating um, session with the minister that started yesterday and has, um, will be going on for at least part of this week. Okay. Um, now, Richard, could you uh, comment on class? Uh, they are uh, making a fairly strong demand, not just for a tuition freeze, but actually for free tuition. Don't they risk alienating uh, the, the wider public, if not uh, some of their own students, in taking a, that kind of a stand? No, as a matter of fact, it's had the opposite effect. I think it's won them a lot of public support to the degree that people have come to understand that demand. It's led to a big debate all through a Quebec society because they point out that, in fact, going back 50 years to the original uh, quiet revolution of the 1960s, the original idea of the educational reform, which was quite sweeping, that was carried out in that, um, in that period, uh, the, you know, taking con uh, control of education away from the church, secularizing it, and um, laying the basis for a vast expansion of educational institutions, uh, especially in the post-secondary field, universities and colleges. All of that was part of a general reform package, which, um, according to the government's own commission at the time, the Peron Commission, was at some point to produce um, uh, gratuité scolaire, which is free edu post-secondary education. And in other words, right from kindergarten through to postgraduate studies, it would be free of tuition fees. There would be no tuition fees. And that was part of it. In fact, the Peron Commission even talked about um, needy students being given um, a certain basic salary so they could continue their studies and not have to work at other jobs and so on. Well, all of that got lost along the way, and particularly in the last few decades under neoliberalism. And so um, although the Quebec fees, student fees, are actually the lowest in Canada among the different provinces, um, they, uh, that's mainly because the stu there's been this, this historic 
um, understanding in Quebec that education is really a social right and that it's a, it's a, it's a right of society. And that, in fact, Quebec is still in a, something of a catch-up phase because up until the 1960s, its education system lagged very badly compared to other provinces in Canada. And they're still in this process. There's also a feeling that um, because free education obviously serves those in lower income levels the most, families that have few resources and so on, it's something that concerns uh, the whole society and, and certainly the, the, the vast majority of us, you know, <laughs> the 99%, if you want. Um, the 1% don't have to worry about that. They can pay whatever it takes. So it's, I think the students, by putting it in that social framework, they got the struggle out of the idea that this was just a sort of corporatist struggle by the students for themselves and in their own narrow interests. They put it in that social context, and that's really important. And it turns out it sounds more radical, but in fact it was a way of reaching out to the society and winning support from much broader layers. And so you've got, for example, the major trade union federations in Quebec, the, the big three and, and, and other unions, all coming out in favor of free university education, things they haven't talked about for a good many years, um, and other layers of society, too. The professors have been very good, issuing strong statements, um, not only opposing the immediate fee increase that's now posed, but also talking about the need to treat education as a social good and not uh, some sort of commodity that students buy into as consumers. Okay, well, if uh, if it's true that this uh, student movement is, is growing and becoming a major social movement, then how do you see the uh, the situation resolving itself over the next several weeks and months? What's, what's, what's the end game here? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I know what the students would like, and that is to... Um, uh, roll back the immediate increase, and then to have perhaps an estates general, as they call it in Quebec, a very broad debat de societe, a, a debate which involves all kinds of layers of Quebec society, talking about um, what's to be done about the education system and accessibility to um, uh, post-secondary uh, education. You know, that's the sort of thing that you do sometimes in Canada when you have a royal commission but it would be a representative body, and the states general wouldn't just be a few um, uh, investigators, a few commissioners um, hearing briefs from the public, but it would be a much broader debate, where a commission that would, uh, states general might travel around the province and get memoirs, or uh, briefs rather, and hear from people, and there would be a, uh, a lot of uh, discussion, and, and the hope that out of that discussion there would evolve um, a, a, something more consistent with the original spirit of the education reform of the 60s. People are much more conscious of the fact that there's been a rollback of previous gains, um, which were reflected in the fact that these were historically quite low until a few years ago. Okay, well, Richard, uh, I think we have to leave it there, but uh, I want to thank you for... Uh, helping us to understand uh, these uh, very uh, historically significant uh, developments happening in La Belle Province. Richard Findler, thank you for being our guest on Alert. Thank you. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Richard Fiddler. He is an independent activist and uh, the author of the Life on the Left blog. Another province where we're seeing some rather interesting political developments is the province of B.C. Last week, 
we saw two BC by-elections, which went to the New Democratic Party, and there's a major pipeline raising some concerns both for and against, which is putting local communities against the federal government. For an analysis of these and other developments in British Columbia, we're joined by Derek O'Keefe. He is a Vancouver-based political activist. He's a member of the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective and was recently appointed to the editorship of Rabble.ca. So uh, thank you for joining us, Derek, and congratulations on your um, editorial role at Rabble. Oh, great. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, it's exciting and a busy time to be coming back to uh, to work as editor of uh, Rabble. A busy time for alternative media and for social justice activists in general in yeah. Canada. Could we talk a little bit about the uh, the by-elections from uh, last Thursday, which uh, went to the NDP? Uh, are you familiar with uh, some of the big election uh, issues that may have been driving those results? Sure. Well, the the NDP won both ridings, and and both ridings were in traditional strongholds of, of more right wing parties in BC. Um, I wouldn't want listeners to think that these two by-election wins signal a big shift to the left in BC. I think it signals extreme dissatisfaction with the BC Liberal government and also some splitting of the right-wing vote. We've seen a resurgence of the BC Conservative Party, um, which has become a sort of a pole of attraction for the more socially conservative uh, business or or right-wing voters in BC. So the BC Conservatives um, picked up, I think, 15% in one riding and, and somewhere above 20% in another riding. And so that's partly why the NDP was able to come up uh, and easily win those by-elections. But um, the, the NDP surge in the polls, and I should say the BC NDP is, is well ahead in the polls and looks like they'll win the next provincial election, which is slated for no later than May uh, 2013. Okay, could you talk a little bit about the uh, that... Uh the, the two parties that uh, the, the, the Conservatives have uh, somehow split away from the Liberal Party? Uh, is there any prospect of them uh, re-merging if it seems so likely that uh, the NDP is polling so well? Yeah, well, in B.C. there's a long tradition of, of right-wing and business parties coming and going as sort of coalitions to, to block the NDP. So, yeah, certainly there there is that dynamic uh, taking place. At the same time, you see less presence than ever of the B.C. Green Party. They're almost invisible under their current leader, Jane Sterk. Um, so this sort of gives a freer hand to, to the NDP to, um, you know, they're not feeling any pressure from the Greens, who, although they've never been a, a left party in B.C., um, they have been able to be a pressure point for voters concerned about environmental protection. Well, what do you suppose is behind the Green Party's loss in popularity? Well, um, I, I think it's uh, a little bit just the, the caliber of, of the leadership or a, a lack of visibility. Um, in their last leadership race, they um, selected Jane Sterk, who I believe is a municipal councillor, or that was her experience on Vancouver Island. Um, but she doesn't come out of a social movement or left, left-wing left um, tradition at all. So she has more of a pro-business green um, politics. Uh, you know, I think you would have seen a much different Green Party in B.C., with a more activist or, or left-wing leadership. Um, certainly would have pulled the NDP more, and um, you know some would argue that would have split the left-wing vote, but um, I think it would have produced a much healthier political dynamic in the province. Now, um, there's also uh, another major uh, project uh, called uh, the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, which uh, is a 
uh, an American-based company building a pipeline to the West Coast. And it's apparently set a lot of coastal local governments, including Vancouver, against the, the federal government. So um, how, how do you see that whole dynamic uh, evolving, particularly uh, in the context of a uh, uh, moribund provincial liberal government? Yeah, well, in the context of the, the provincial government, which is supportive of all these pipeline and business uh, corporate proposals to build pipelines as much as they, they, they try to say they're neutral or try to say it's a federal issue, the provincial government is on side. Um, but also in the context of just unprecedented, blatant um, cuts to environmental regulation and pushing through of these pipeline projects by the federal government. Um, I think those two things, um, combined with a long tradition of environmental activism and a resurgence, really, of indigenous leadership um, of some of these environmental struggles, I think in the next five years you're going to see the biggest protests in the history uh, of the environmental movement in Canada and, and maybe in the history of B.C. There was a, um, a rally on a weekday at noon against the Enbridge pipeline that saw 2,000 people come out in the middle of the day uh, in Vancouver, which is unusual. And then um, last weekend at the Earth Day March, which was organized by high school students, there was uh, a couple thousand people, and, and the focus of that action was opposing the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline. The thing, your listeners may be less familiar with the Kinder Morgan proposal, but it's as big or actually a little bit bigger than the Enbridge proposal, um, and it actually will involve tankers going right out through Vancouver Harbor, um, approximately one giant oil tanker per day if this pipeline is expanded the way they want to, uh, will be going out right through Vancouver Harbor, which if you know, is a very narrow harbor um, with the second narrows and then the first narrows, which goes right past um, Stanley Park. So we've already seen the mayor of Burnaby come out uh, very strong, which is where the uh, the pipeline terminal is. Uh, and also the mayor of Vancouver, Gregor Robertson, has um, made some very strong comments that the city uh, government and, and his council will uh, will oppose strongly this uh, Kinder Morgan expansion. So it's, it's shaping up to be... Uh, I think we're just at the very early stages of this Kinder Morgan issue. Um, and so, it does so happen to be one of the biggest pipeline and oil and gas companies in the world based in Houston, Texas. And uh, as far as the timeline is concerned, uh, when do you expect this company to uh, appear before the National Energy Board for its ap- with its application? They have, uh, in their announcement, they indicated they would do it in early 2014, although they looked like they were keeping the door open to submit at the end of 2013. Um, and then if, the, if they were able to go ahead, the pipeline would be expanded and finished by 2017. So we're still a year and a half, two years away till when they submit that application. But we have to remember that the, the federal government, the Harper government, has made it very clear they're going to make those applications, they're going to expedite them, they're going to make it easier to get approval um, more quickly. So what happens in the next year and a half, two years, is going to be very, very crucial to stopping this pipeline. And so it's a very good sign that within days of the announcement by Kinder Morgan, we had protests of, of a couple thousand people and uh, a, a ton of, of media coverage, um, in, in particular because of the mayor of Vancouver, who has a high profile, uh, is known as a, as a green entrepreneur, you know, has wants to, to give Vancouver this... Uh, global image of being a green city. And, and I think he realizes that if these giant oil tankers and this pipeline goes through, uh, that image that he's carefully cultivated uh, in Canada and uh, more broadly internationally for Vancouver, that is going to be 
completely shot. So, you know, there's certainly aspects of nimbyism, uh, you know, not in my backyard to, to some of the people who are opposed to this pipeline, but there's also a strong base of indigenous activists and uh, First Nations and young people who have a climate justice analysis and see the Kinder Morgan and the Enbridge pipeline as part of Canada's um, disproportionate contribution to climate change and, and something we really have to stop. Seems as if interesting times have found British Columbia. Uh, so thank you for sharing that analysis with us. Sure, and uh, we hope uh, that uh, alert uh, will will keep on top of the story. This, I, like I said, we're we're just getting started out here. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. Alert has been speaking with Derek O'Keefe on the Canadian Dimension Editorial Collective and the recently appointed editor for Rabble.ca. This is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik. And this week's show is a replaying of a whole bunch of songs from the classic 1955 album by the Almanac Singers Talking Union. Now, everybody on the left who was around then had a copy of this album. Everybody knew all these songs. And I have to say that from a very personal point of view, this is the album that kind of inspired the politics in my heart. I learned every word of every song. And whenever I'd go to political stuff, I was a guy who knew all the words. So here to start are the Almanac Singers with Miner's Lifeguard. Miner's life is like a sailor's Board a ship to cross the waves Every day his life's in danger
mind. God provides for every nation when in union they combine. Stand like men and linked together. Victory for you'll prevail. Keep your hand upon the If you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. It ain't quite this simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be awaiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter'll be the straw boss then. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet and call a meeting. Talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Of course, the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool, but you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yaller streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool. He'll always get along on what he takes out of blind men's cups. You got a union now and you're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen when one guy squawks cause he's got to listen when the union talks. He'd better be mighty lonely. Everybody decide to walk out on him. Suppose they're working you so hard it's just outrageous and they're paying you all starvation wages. You go to the boss and the boss would yell, before I raise your pay, I'd see you all in hell. Well, he's puffing a big cigar, feeling mighty slick because he thinks he's got your union lick. Well, he looks out the window and what does he see but a thousand pickets and they all agree he's a bastard. Unfair. Slave driver. Bet he beats his wife. Now, boys, you come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard. They'll tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting. They'll hit you on the head. They'll call every one of you a damn red unpatriotic. Japanese spies. Sabotaging national defense. 
But out at Ford, here's what they found, and out at Vultee, here's what they found, and out at Alice Chalmers, here's what they found, and down at Bethlehem, here's what they found, that if you don't let red baiting break you up, and if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, and if you don't let vigilantes break you up, and if you don't let race hatred break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. That was the title song from the album Talk in Union. That was Pete Seeger leading the charge there. And before that, Sis Cunningham leading Miner's Lifeguard. Those six people who primarily made up the album like Pete Seeger, Lee Hayes, Sis Cunningham, Woody Guthrie, Mill Lampell, and Bess Lomax, without realizing it, they were creating a historical album. And that album has inspired hundreds of thousands of people over the years. It's a very, very culturally powerful piece of work. It's quite simple. It's folk music. So here we're going to go back to the album, the Almanac Singers, taking an old gospel song, Jesus Had a Cross That Lonesome Valley, and it became You Gotta Go Down and Join the Union. Yeah. 
Sheriffs who made the raid, she went to the Union Hall when a meeting it was called. And when the Legion boys come round, she always stood her ground. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the Union. I'm sticking to the Union. I'm sticking to the Union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the Union. I'm sticking to the Union till the day I die. This union maid was wise to the tricks of company spies. She couldn't be fooled by a company stool. She'd always organize the guys. She'd always get her way when she struck for better pay. She'd show her car to the National Guard, and this is what she'd say. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. You gals who want to be free, just take a tip from me. Get you a man who's a union man and join the ladies' auxiliary. Married life ain't hard when you got a union card. A union man has a happy life when he's got a union wife. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union, I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union, till the day I die. Union made, roll the union on, and you've got to
to go down and join the union. Three classic songs from a very classic album called Talking Union, and that's what we're playing today. To finish off the show, here is a song that became the anthem of the labor movement and has been for some time and will be probably forever, and the best-known recording is this one. Here is Solidarity Forever. shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes it is we who plowed the prairies, built the cities where they trade, dug the mines and built the workshops, endless miles of railroad laid. Now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders we have made, but the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. Taken untold millions that they never toil to earn But without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn That the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity forever Solidarity forever In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of atoms magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, solidarity forever. And that's the end of the show for this week, folks. Next week is our May Day show and the last show of the year. This is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. Solidarity. That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We will be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on Ravel.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Tommy Allen and Michael Welch. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the left by Ashley Titterton. 
Music is the Weapon by Mitch Badalik with technical production by Andrew Valpe. I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.